0: Uh, Today, I have the privilege of closing out our James series with this last message. And in a sense, I think these last two verses in James is a culmination of all the things that he's been talking about in uh, the last quarter, right? It's almost like a final exam. Uh, All the things that he's taught in the past five chapters, now he's saying, do you remember all those things and can we now apply it? in this final exam, this final test. Uh, Remember what James is about. James is about, the the letter of James is about, you have this faith, you believe in Jesus Christ, this is the gospel message that you trust in. Now, how does that uh, apply in your life? How does that translate? How does that show in the way that you live your life, right? And so just to highlight a few of the things to remind you and refresh you of what was going on in the past couple chapters, in James uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 14, this is his theme. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So that's the theme, right? If you have faith but it has no works, then that faith is dead. You have to show your faith by the works that, are sh- that, that you do. And so here are three of them. In chapter 1. When you are facing persecution, how do you respond to persecution as someone who believes in the gospel? Do you turn away and do you wither away and run away and say, forget this, or complain? James chapter 1, verse 2 it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be complete and, uh, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It says, to take joy in knowing that God is sanctifying you through it, that he's growing you and you're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ through persecution. That's the type of perspective someone who has faith in the gospel would respond to persecution. And then in chapter 2, it says to treat others equally, to be impartial, right? In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, how do you respond? You treat others equally, impartially. You don't look at the people who are beneath you socially or financially and look down on them and treat them uh, as they were lower than you. But you raise them up and you honor them. That's how someone in faith responds and acts to those who are of different classes. And thirdly, How do we speak? How do we use our words? In chapter 3, verse 8. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. In the same mouth come blessing and cursing my brothers. These things ought not to be so. For those who believe in Jesus Christ and believe in the gospel, the way you act is by using your words to bless others and to support others and to encourage others, not to gossip and to slander and to bring down others. So the book of James is all about what you believe and how that translates in your life, okay? And so what we see is that this final, these final two verses in chapter 5, it's the culmination. It's the final exam. It really puts all of the things that we've been learning from chapters 1 through 5 into this one application saying, If you do this one application, you've really understood all the other ones. And that's this. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. He says, for those of us, the final exam is for us to bring back those who have wandered from the truth. Have wandered from the faith. This is the culmination of that reveals that you know and you've really applied all the things from chapters one through five. For example, impartiality. You know, that depending, you don't go to anyone, you don't just go to the people that you like or the people that are in your same social status and try to bring them back from wandering, but you're equally pursuing. Everyone and anyone in the church. That's why verse 19 starts with, if anyone among you wanders. It's It's an idea of impartiality. You're treating everyone and honoring everyone and you're bringing back anyone that has fallen away. Secondly, this idea of persecution, just like in chapter one, it says, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. It says, even in persecution, the gospel causes us to reach out to those who have fallen away, who are... Discouraged, who are saying, oh my gosh, this is so difficult. I can't handle this. And they've strayed. For you to have the proper perspective of persecution and suffering and hardship and to go out and to reach out and bring them back. And also the way we use our speech. Right? That we use our speech not just to, uh, not to slander others, but to bless others and to bring them back to Christ. So, I'm, I hope you guys can see that chapters one, two, three, all of these different applications of all the faith that you have it should be demonstrated to actions are now being shown in this one final application. How we understand the gospel will impact the way we respond to those who have wandered, who have fallen away. Now, before we get further along in that, I want to define what that means what does it mean for someone to have wandered away and fallen away? It's not just someone who has left our church, right? You know, I'm sure in your mind, you can think if you've been at our church for a while, people who have stopped coming to our church. But I don't think scripture is specifically talking about that because he says it's someone who has wandered from the truth, not from our church. And, you know, they've gone to some other church and like, oh my gosh, they're wandering. We have to bring them back from that church to our church. That's not what it's talking about. It's someone who has wandered from the truth, uh, you know Tony Evans is a pastor that I highly respect from Dallas Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship Church. He gives these stages of someone who wanders, and he uses the book of Hebrews to show this. And he says the first is that the wanderer, who the person who wanders who neglects the truth, is someone who is uh, neglecting their spiritual life. In chapter two of Hebrews 1 through 3 it says, Therefore we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. The wanderer starts to stop, or he, he starts to stop he stops paying attention to the spiritual things. He is no longer uh, attentive to his spiritual walk. And, you know, as I was thinking about this, there are so many different causes for spiritual neglect. Why people would start to say, "Ah, oh, you know what, I don't care about my spiritual walk as much anymore. And I was thinking about one of the things is maybe even stage of life. You know, as early as I can remember, even in junior high... When you first came to junior high, uh, you know, I grew up in the church. Even at my youth group, there were people that you started to realize they started to neglect their spiritual life because, you know, in elementary school, everyone's kind of the same, but junior high is the first time when you start to notice, like, there's cool people and there's uncool people and there's those gangsters and non-gangsters and then those people start sitting in the back and they start not caring about what the sermons are saying. And... They don't want to apply anything and do the opposite. They want to go smoke in the back. Is that too early for junior high? They probably did that in junior high, right? But they start to neglect their spiritual walks. And then you get into high school and you start to drive and you're like, oh, I don't want to go to church on Sunday when I can do all these other things. And then you go to college and your parents aren't there. So you're like, I'm going to do even more crazy stuff. And then you become a young adult and you have some money and you're finally like, okay, I'm going to do the things that I want to do. And then you get married. And you're like, okay, well, I don't have time to do all these other things. I'm so busy, and you start to neglect your spiritual walk. And then you get married, or and then you retire, and you're like, I'm too tired to do all this stuff. And so, not to say that everyone does this, but you can see that there's all these different parts of the stage of life where people begin to neglect uh, their spiritual walks. Uh, Along with that, maybe it's not a life stage, but it's just a time of season that you're in, a hardship, uh, a Maybe you're being persecuted, uh, or you're facing a difficult trial in your life, and the wanderer will feel like, man, you know, maybe God's not here, or I don't want to worship a God that will allow this type of thing to happen in my life, or to my family, or to my loved ones, and they start to wander. Or it might just be blatant sin, right? Just, there's a sin that I'm involved with, and, you know, I just enjoy this more than, you know, pursuing the spiritual things. And so the first stage is the spiritual neglect, which often leads into a spiritual hardness where not only uh, are you now neglecting your spiritual life, but you're enjoying that sin more and more. You know, when you first fall into sin, you're like, this is so, I'm such a sinner, I'm so wretched, I can't believe I did this, and you feel so guilty. And then the next time you do it, it's a little bit less and then a little bit less and then a little bit less until finally you become hardened to it. Hebrews 3.12, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then it leads to stubbornness in 5.11. About this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Where you're falling into sin and you've wandered away from the faith and people are now coming to you and trying to correct you and teach you and bring you back to church and explain, you know, and share with you the grace of Christ, and you're just like, "Ah, dull of hearing. I don't want to hear it anymore. Until finally there's a loss of fellowship. That's why in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, 25, it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You have said, oh, you know what? I don't want to deal with this anymore. I, I just enjoy the life that I'm living, the life for myself and I don't like people telling me that I'm, my life is wrong and I should change my lifestyle or whatever it is. So I'm going to just disassociate with the church. And they start to leave the church. Until finally in Hebrews 10:26, there is this just deliberate rebellion. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. They've disconnected from their faith and the church. And at this point, they're just like, you know what? Forget it. Forget this faith. I'm just going to live however I want. You know, as I share this, maybe you resonate with that a little bit. Maybe even in your own life, you've wandered at some point or another. Or maybe in your mind, you think of a friend or a family member or a co or someone that was somewhere along that spectrum Or they're neglecting their spiritual life or they've disassociated with the church and they're willfully rebelling, whatever it might be. And Scripture speaks to these people and calls them to come back. But here in James, like we said before, James is not addressing the wanderer; he's addressing the church, those who are noticing, and, noticing and observing those people who are wandering, who are wandering from the truth of the gospel. Because he says the very first thing in nineteen, "My brothers," he's calling us here. He says, "My brothers." If you notice anyone wandering from the truth, if you see it, right, he's calling us to say, hey, if you have this gospel truth and you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, my brothers and sisters, this is how you will respond. And he gives us uh, these applications for how we need to respond to those who are wandering. And so I want to share these three ways that James calls us to respond. And for those of you guys who have that green sheet, the outline, if you're following with that, uh, just to let you know, just so you're not confused, that first part, you know, there's three sections that I'm going to be sharing at the end. The first one I'm going to share at the end. So I'm actually going to be starting with the second point, and then third point, and then the first point. So don't get lost in case you were following that, all right? So the first point is this. What we need to understand about the gospel is the magnitude of the situation, the gravity of the consequences of turning away from the gospel message. And when we understand that about the gospel, for us, it will lead us to be urgent in bringing back those who have strayed. You know, in any epic movie, right, uh, where there's this huge consequence, for example, like some virus movie, if there's this virus that's going to spread and kill the whole world they'll say an epic line like this could threaten the very existence of the human species right something super epic or this could change the very world as we know it right you you probably heard something along those lines as you've heard uh, movies where you know there's an asteroid hitting the earth or a virus or zombies or whatever right They're trying to get you to understand the gravity of the situation. That if this situation is not figured out, there could be something very serious that happens. And I think that's going on in this passage as well. Because in verse 19, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. You will save this soul from death. He's explaining the gravity of this situation. He's saying, guys, do you realize that if we figure this situation out, that you will save this person's soul from death? What, do you understand the gospel and the consequences of turning away and strength and the, the consequences of death, the eternal death, when all of God's wrath, his judgment is poured out, on sinners for eternity. I mean, think of the worst place that you've ever been to. Uh, I shouldn't say anything because someone might be from a certain place and might get offended. But let's just say, think of the worst place that you've ever been to, right? And think about the most pain you've ever felt physically, emotionally, and spiritually and all at once and multiply that by infinity for the duration of eternity, Right? And that's what they're, uh, they're headed towards, that you will save his soul from death. In Revelation 20, verse 10, it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they, were, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. He's saying, do you understand the gravity of this situation? It's a matter of life and death. And it should cause you to be urgent. When you think of the people in your life who don't know the gospel, who have turned away, this should cause us to seriously reconsider our position and how urgent this warning is. You know, if there's a loved one that's about to get hit by a car, we don't pause to think, "All right, so how fast is that car going? You know, is this going to be safe? You know, what should I do? Should I call someone?" No, you're you're reacting. You're running to that loved one to try to save that uh, person from the hitting from getting hit by the car. There's an urgency involved, right? And even Jesus Christ when he shares the parable about the shepherd who loses the one sheep amongst the 99 sheep. What does it say? Does he say, "Oh, he he calls his friend Bill and asks him to take care of the 99 while he goes out looks for the one"? And he develops a game plan to figure out where he could possibly be lost. No, he says he leaves the 99 and he's such in a hurry because he knows the gravity of the situation. He goes and searches for that one sheep. This is the situation that we find ourselves that we cannot be casual about it. And I think I I fall under this all the time too. I am tempted to think and to be casual about this too because I think I've heard from people that say like, yo, well, just wait till that person gets his life together. Then they'll come back, you know. Uh, Right now, they just need a job, and when they get a job, you know, they'll come back. Or when they get married, you know, they'll come back. Or when they have kids, they'll come back. They'll want their kids to be raised in a Christian home. And you see, excuse after excuse, and we delay uh, our urgency to go and pursue these people, those who have wandered. But For us who understand the gospel message, for those of us who understand the gravity of the situation for those who don't receive the gospel in faith, that needs to lead us and prompt us to be urgent in sharing the gospel and bringing the gospel to those who have wonder. Secondly, for us who understand the gospel and we understand how we are saved, the means to which we are saved, it should cause us to pursue others with humility and meekness. Again, going back to 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Will Cover a multitude of sins. You will save his soul from death or her soul from death And the way it's going to happen is that you're going to cover a multitude of sins. See, James knows, and he knows that his people know, that the only way that you will be saved from death, that your soul will be saved from death, is for your sins to be forgiven. And he knows that the only way for your sins to be forgiven is by coming to Jesus Christ. This is the gospel message. And he says, for you to understand only Jesus Christ can cover and his death and his resurrection and his blood can cover over our, the multitude of sins. He also says these multitude of sins not only are their sins, but you're also recognizing that the blood of Jesus Christ covers over the multitude of our sins, right? It's the multitude of sins, their sins and our sins. And when we understand, that we are also a people that are desperately in need of the gospel, to be forgiven. It's impossible for us to go to a person arrogantly or pridefully or to think that we in ourselves have done something great. That's why we're in the church. No, it's only by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that sustains us, that allows us to even be here and to be faithful, right? It's not because of our merit, it's not because of our discipline, it's not because we have our lives together that we're such great Christians and that we're here. No, it's solely by the grace of God that he has held us and sustained us to be able to come to church and to worship him. And as soon as we understand that about the gospel, that it covers over the multitude of their sins and our sins, then it's going to cause us to approach that person not Arrogantly, like, hey, you need to get your life together. Hey, what's wrong with you, man? How come you haven't been to church for a while? But it causes us to come to them with humility and meekness. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Paul is very clear. He understands. He said you should restore them gently keep watch on yourself because you also might be tempted by that sin. So Paul's not saying, oh, you're such a great person, and so if you see someone falling into sin, then restore them and correct them because you're the bigger brother, you're the bigger sister, and you're so spiritually strong. No. He's saying you should restore him and, or her, but you should be careful too because you could be tempted as well. There's a humility involved. I think this is the ultimate demonstration that we understand the gospel. When we're able to approach others with this type of humility and meekness. Because what we understand about the gospel is that you and I, we were wanderers as well. You know, we see people who are straying, but we were people who strayed as well. You know, throughout history, from the beginning of time, from Adam and Eve who wandered, who took the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and wandered from God, to Israel who wandered in the desert for 40 years in disobedience, to even today, all of us have been kept, sustained, and saved by simply the grace of God. It's not by our own merit or our goodness. And so when we approach others, we approach understanding that with humility and meekness and to bring Christ to them because we know that it's only through Christ that he forgives the multitude of sins. Now, you know, as I share this, you know, one of the hard things for me is uh, I think I struggle with this, right, to pursue people. Because to be honest, it's difficult work. Uh, it's often uncomfortable. Uh, it probably takes a lot of time and resources to pursue someone maybe that you're not even that close with. It might get awkward. It's risky because you don't know how they'll respond. Maybe they'll act negatively towards you. But what I think James is trying to say here, as we do this, as we understand the gospel, is that it's worth it. It's worth the risk. It's worth the time. It's worth the cost. It's worth being uncomfortable. It's worth it. Again, verse 19 and 20, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings them back let him know, he's talking to that brother or sister who's bringing back the wanderer. He says, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. He says, I know it's difficult, but tell that brother or sister who brings them back, it's worth it because you're going to be saving his soul from death and you're covering over a multitude of sins. It's the highest privilege Let them know that they will be participating in the most amazing work, to point someone back to Jesus Christ so that their soul will be saved. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 through 8, he says this, "'But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish.' in order that I may gain Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul understood what true gain was. And he knew that pursuing Christ and to know Christ, that was the highest privilege. He says, I count everything else as a loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus. And you know, Paul was one of the greatest missionaries of the Christian, of Christian faith. And what he knew was the surpassing value of knowing Christ and sharing that with others. It's a privilege, not a burden, not a chore, to go and reach out to those who have wandered. Um, you know, Pastor Steve, to our staff, one of the things that he always reminds us to, to try to say is, uh, instead of saying, I have to you know, be at church by 7.30 to set up or break down, and I have to go to VBS to serve and make food, and instead of, I have to, he says, replace it with, I get to. And I think he's said this before in one of his messages, but when we substitute that word, it reminds us of the privilege that we have in serving Christ. That is not, oh, I'm a Christian, so now I have to serve in some capacity. But it's The gospel has transformed us and saved us, and now I get to participate in the gospel work. And my prayer is that that would be the mindset that we have, that as we fully begin to understand more and more about the gospel, how precious it is, how valuable it is, the urgency that it would really affect how we respond in our lives. Namely, here, what we see is in the way we approach those who have wandered from the faith. The last thing that I want to share, just real quick, is, you know, as I'm thinking about this sermon, and I'm thinking about this call for our church to pursue those who have wandered from the faith and to bring them back into faith, I I see that as a a church-wide effort, right? It's something that James is calling the church to do. To bring those who have wandered from the faith, who have left the church, wandered from the truth, and now to bring them back to know Christ. And I see this common thread of uh, even the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about uh, missions and how our church is sending out people to Japan and to Mississippi and how we're calling the church to support them in prayer and in, in financial support and whatever it might be. And we're calling the church to be one. And also, I remember even VBS, we were talking about how we need as many volunteers for the church to partner together uh, with our children to bless them and to really invest in our future generation in our church. And what I'm seeing more and more is that God's calling us as one body, to unite us as one church, to pursue Him. And my hope and prayer is that you begin to see that as a church, that we begin to serve one another love one another, to go out to missions, to reach out to those who are wandering, not because we have to, but because we get to, because of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your grace. We want to thank you that it's this gospel, this precious gospel, where you've given us your own son, to die on the cross, for our sins so that we would be saved, our soul would be saved from death, that our sins would be covered. But so that is the reality that we live in today, God. And I pray that that would be more and more true to us in our daily lives, in the way we speak, the way we handle persecution, the way we respond to those who have strayed from the faith. God, I pray that you would uh, help us to have a deeper experience and understanding of the gospel each and every day because that's what will move us, Lord. So thank you for this time. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.